On the White House lawn, September the 15th, 2020, the peace agreements brokered by the United States of America between Israel, the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain were signed. The peace agreements between the nations would be known as the Abraham Accords, in homage to the biblical patriarch of both Jews and Muslims. The Accords have ushered in a new era for Israel and the Gulf region, enabling diplomatic relations, trade, commerce, tourism and cultural exchange. The Accords have the potential to impact the trajectory of the Middle East. The Abraham Accords podcast will be your source of quality conversation for anyone interested in the region with weekly guests on a range of topics from all signatory nations. My name is Robert Curtis and I will be co-hosting this podcast with Fleur Hassan Nahum, Deputy Mayor of Jerusalem and my co-founder of the UAE Israel Business Council. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the Abraham Accords podcast. I'm super excited to kick off our first episode of this unique podcast together with my co-host, Fleur Hassan Nahum. So Fleur, delighted to have you on the first episode. So excited that we're going to be co-hosting this together. Rob, it's like a dream come true for me. I always wanted to host some type of show and you've given me this opportunity. You came up with this great idea um, and it's a topic that people are so interested in. So thank you so much. And I'm very excited that we're going to be co-hosting this show. Fantastic. Well, I, I have to say I'm delighted to be the person that can make, make dreams come true for people. <laughs> All right, don't get over this. Don't get ahead of yourself. Um, it's, really wonderful to, <laughs> it's really wonderful to be here, Rob. You, you're very good at this. So I'm happy that, uh, that we're partnering up on this. Fantastic. Now, let's dive in. For those listeners that for some reason don't know about you, I want to I want to just give them a short introduction, if you would, on who is Fleur, what's your background and what are you doing today? Okay, right. Um, So Fleur uh, was brought up in Gibraltar. I'm a Gibraltarian. Um, So I'm British and I grew up in Gibraltar. I um, studied law in London. I'm a barrister by profession. And I've always been a Zionist. I think since age 13 or 14, I read the Golda Meir um, autobiography and I decided that I wanted to live in Israel. And then I came to live to, to, I came to on holiday to Israel when my cousin got married. First time ever, I was 14 years old. And I left thinking I've got to live here. Um, and I got on with my life, my studies, went to England because that's what all the Gibraltarians do, um, qualified as a barrister. And then luckily I met a man who felt the same way as me, um, who's now my husband. And on the second date, he's like, listen, I have to tell you something. I don't want to stay here. I want to make Aliyah. I'm like, perfect. I'll marry him. And that was that. <laughs> um, we made Aliyah at actually a very difficult time in 2001. It was the beginning of the second intifada. And this was just, you know, just at a time when we thought we were finally going to get peace in the region. Ehud Barak was the prime minister. And he basically offered uh, the Palestinians everything that they'd said they'd wanted. And somehow, um, instead of signing peace deals, we found ourselves uh, in, with uh, urban warfare on the streets of Jerusalem. And we always knew that we wanted to come to Jerusalem. We love Jerusalem. We had some family that was here. That was what we knew. And we made Aliyah to Jerusalem at possibly the worst time possible because, you know, there were bombs going off on the on, on buses. Cafes, I remember walking into cafes and, and, and my husband and I deciding where should we sit in case um, 
where should we sit in case the bomb goes off um, and we'll be less maimed or less injured? Those are the things that we would think to ourselves, which is really crazy and unnatural. I remember driving behind buses and thinking, oh, my God, if this bus goes up, uh, you know, uh, in flames, I'm right behind it. That was the reality in which we immigrated to Jerusalem. Wow. uh, It was horrible. A big psychological impact on the way you were living, being new immigrants to a country. Well, well, imagine being new immigrants. Well, you know, when we decided to make Aliyah, when we decided to immigrate, we were really thinking about it. We were like, should we be going now? You know, when this is what's happening. And then we decided that it's never going to be a good time to move to Israel or to the Middle East. And so we're just going to, you know, and, and I also had this feeling that if our people were in trouble, then this is the place that we needed to be. You know what I mean? Not running away. We had plans to come and we decided to come. Our families didn't take it very well, as you can imagine. They were very scared. My parents in law barely spoke to us for six months um, because they were like, what are you doing? There's a war going on and you're going right in the middle of it. But we honestly felt we didn't feel scared. We just felt, you know, anxious, of course. Um, and of, thank God, after six months a year, things started to get better. Um, at the time, Israel built the security fence, which today I, I spend a lot of my time defending in the media. Why do we have a wall in Jerusalem? Well, because we want to be able to have coffee without getting blown up. Simple as that. Um, nobody wanted to build a wall, but it was uh, a matter of uh, it was the matter of necessity. And uh, and that wall today, unfortunately, is what allows us to have a free life here and have coffee wherever you want. Um, but that was kind of the welcome to welcome to Israel, welcome to Jerusalem time in our lives. It resonates with me. My late father, when I said, you know, I was going to be picking up my my family and moving to Israel and, you know, he wasn't going to see his grandchildren, you know, so often was absolutely devastated, but also from a, a wider perspective said, it's the Middle East. Yes, we love Israel, but you know, it's safer here, isn't it? And to be honest with you, we, my wife and I just felt that the, the stage of the future for us as Jewish people was in Israel and was in the Middle East. And, you know, we didn't know at that stage what would be in the future, but certainly we felt that this was the place that the um, theater of the next stage of our lives and the Jewish people's lives would be. Well, absolutely. That's what, I, that's what we felt. We felt ultimately, you know, after 2000 years, um, two and a half thousand years of exile, we finally have our home and we have a common destiny for the Jewish people. And I really wanted to be a part of that. That's how I felt. And I wanted my children to be a part of that. And I guess that you really, you really have to have some type of ideology to, 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 to pick up sticks and move to you know, the other side of the world, practically very different culture um, and make your life there. And I think that that's what we all have. Thank God. I always say to people, I'm very proud Zionist and uh, it's a shame this word has these negative connotations today people don't really understand what I'm trying to say and it's always the same you know ultimately you know it's about um, it's about the self-determination of Jews in their ancestral homeland um, and that's why we're here and we're not here um, to do harm to anybody we're here because we're indigenous from this land now, and we it- deserve our own homeland so, Fleur, everybody who makes Aliyah, moves to Israel, or even goes to live in Jerusalem, not everyone ends up as the deputy mayor of Jerusalem <laughs> with a portfolio covering 
foreign affairs, economic development and tourism. How did this happen, Fleur? How does that happen? Okay. Um, well, I want to start by saying that um, politics is, no, is something I know. Why? Because my father was a politician. Some people may know his name, Sir Joshua Hassan. Unfortunately, he passed away over 22 years ago, but he was the first mayor of Gibraltar and the first chief minister of Gibraltar, which is like prime minister. Um, he basically, him and his group of friends brought democracy to Gibraltar um, from being a colony that was completely ruled by the UK. And they did that very methodically, very carefully and very successfully, ultimately. Um, and so when I was born, my father was already in this position. So I didn't know anything else. Um, that's how I was raised. I was raised with my parents having to be out all the time in different functions, um, having people come to my house at all hours. My father was a very accessible chief minister and always willing to listen to anybody who needed help. And so that was, I guess, my, my education. Um, and so politics wasn't alien to me. And I, and I, and I want to repeat that because I think a lot of people are discouraged from entering politics um, because they think it's a real sort of cesspit, <laughs> which it kind of is. But when you grow up, I've seen the good sides. I've seen the bad sides of politics, but I've also seen the very good sides of politics and the job satisfaction that you get when you help people, certainly people or mass, the individual, whatever, whoever it is that you're helping, you're making their lives a little bit easier. And that's kind of where my heart has always been. I was always one of these people who was class rep, and then I was head of JSOC in King's College. So it's like politicians are politicians their whole lives, I think. You know, then I was on the PTA. I'm always one of those people. This was your destiny. This running was your for destiny. something. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, when I made Aliyah, when I immigrated, I, I didn't speak Hebrew. So for me, the thought of, you know, being a politician in Israel, and having to make speeches in Hebrew is really, really daunting, really daunting. Um, but after 20 years of being in the country and four or five years in, in politics, I got over that. <laughs> I can make speeches in Hebrew. And I have to accept that sometimes there won't be like a mother tongue Israelis. But uh, that's okay as long as I'm, I'm, being, I'm being understood and I make my point. Um, that's what I, that's what I try and hang on to. <laughs> but uh, so what happened was, um, so I, I was working in nonprofit for many, many years, even though I'm a lawyer, I left law. I didn't want to be a lawyer in Israel because of the Hebrew again. Um, so I worked for the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, the JDC or the joint as people call it. And this is the largest humanitarian aid organization, Jewish humanitarian aid organization in the world. And I worked um, there for six years and I really, really was a, for me, was like a university on Israel and all the gaps in society. And then after that, I, I was the executive director of a small organization called Tikva Children's Homes, which basically saves abandoned and abused Jewish children from the former Soviet Union, eventually bringing them to Israel. I did that for five years. And then after 12 years in nonprofit, I said, I, I, need, I need a break. But so what do you do when you don't want to do something? You become a consultant. <laughs> so I became a communications consultant, helping people with their messaging and public speaking, mainly Israelis that wanted to do public speaking outside of Israel or for uh, foreign audiences or for fundraising, whatever it was. So I did that for five years. And, and in that job, I was asked to help a small political party on the local scene. 
And I got exposed to local politics, which I had really very little knowledge about. I mean, I always voted for the mayor, always voted for the council, but I was never very involved. Um, but then this door was open to me and I had to had to walk through it. Um, and that's how I became a city council member in 2016. And then again, I ran with a Likud minister who was running for mayor, Zev Elkin, in 2018 as his number two. And that to me was also an introduction into kind of national politics because this was a national politician. Uh, I joined the Likud party. I'm a central committee member today. Um, and I got my seat, even though he didn't win. And in the second round, I supported the mayor who won. Uh, and I always say, and this is my father told me always, politics has a lot of luck and there's a lot of timing involved. And so, you know, that's how I wound up here. And when he did win, he said to me, okay, what do you want? Now that you're here, what do you want? And I said to him, I want to be the foreign minister of Jerusalem. I want to do all the things that a foreign person, a foreigner function has to do because Jerusalem is a world city. It's an international city. Um, it's a city with a very strong brand. It probably has a stronger brand than the word Israel. I mean, it's been analyzed. And so I want to use this uh, Jerusalem as a platform for uh, bettering the country, of course, bettering the city, uh, bettering our relationships with cities around the world, um, and also closing the social gaps that we have in Jerusalem as an example of how we can close social gaps around the country and around the world even. I think, uh, first of all, I'm renaming you. You're going to be the Secretary of State for Jerusalem, the Foreign Minister <laughs> for Jerusalem. Thank you. <laughs> Fake it till you make it, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Now, let's, let's dive right back into to present day, because fast forward to only a few months ago, um, we have this incredible announcement of a peace deal between Israel and the UAE and the burgeoning Arab Accords, as they were then entitled. In your seat within the um, Jerusalem platform, shall we say, what did this mean to you instantly? Jerusalem takes center stage in many ways because it is so um, important and relevant for obviously three main religions, um, but in particular here, Jerusalem, as you say, has this elevated status even in parallel to Israel as a country. What did the Abraham Accords mean for Jerusalem at that point? Well, I saw just an, an enormous opportunity. And the opportunity is that Jerusalem is the most multicultural city in the country, a def very diverse city. We have, I think, the largest, we're the largest absorber of immigrants um, from you know, tens and tens of countries. You hear every language here. We have 25% ultra-Orthodox Jews who have their own, of course, um, characteristics and uh, challenges and, uh, and you know, um, issues. Then we have 37% Arabs who are um, not under the Palestinian Authority and not uh, Arab-Israeli. So they kind of, there's a hybrid here. And I think what characterizes them is that they all feel very much Jerusalemites. Um, and, and I felt that the, to be in, in on, honestly, the most multicultural city in the country with such a large percentage of Arab speakers provided us an opportunity to be really the platform where the peace can play out. And not just in terms of economic ties, but also cultural ties, um, and any diplomatic ties 
that we need to, you know, to um, crystallize with the Gulf. I think uh, an Arab from the Gulf would feel very comfortable in Jerusalem. Um, certainly they want to come here because this is where uh, their third holiest site is, Temple Mount for us, Haram al-Sharif for them. And so everybody that I've met from the Gulf has as a thing on their bucket list, we need to go to Jerusalem and pray in Haram al-Sharif. And so all of this together, I'm, as you say, I'm, I'm also in charge of tourism. I thought that there was a unique opportunity to bring a new form of tourism to Jerusalem, which is Muslim tourists. Um, as you know, for many years, we've been uh, very, very lucky to have incredible numbers of Christian tourists coming to our city, to our country. It's a big chunk of our income in terms of, uh, you know, income for the city through tourism. And I thought to myself, well, this is a new era where we can pitch to Muslim tourists to come and enjoy the city in the same way that Christian tourists have for many, many years. Um, so that was the first thing that I was excited about. Did, did this not happen anyway, though, Fleur, that for many, many years, um, visitors to Jerusalem who were coming from, let's say, you know, uh, you know, red countries, um, which obviously has a different meaning today in our Corona um, times, but certainly from countries that were not at peace with Israel, but they were coming through and being able to visit um, the Al-Aqsa Mosque and be able to 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 do that, but but through other channels. This really just I I don't think they were coming. Research. I don't think they were coming. I mean, I've never, I've never. Look, of course, the Palestinians um, cross the crossing and they come to pray whenever they want. Not only that, during the month of Ramadan, we provide buses uh, and put them in all the checkpoints so we can we can actually bring Muslims to pray. But these are Muslims from here. Sure. We have you ever heard of? Um, have you ever heard of Jordanian tourists or Egyptian tourists coming? I haven't. Uh, and I'm and I'm in, and I'm involved. I'm sure that there's a handful, but certainly not to any critical numbers that 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 would make a difference to the economy of the city. And so I think that with the Gulf countries, we have a really a real unique opportunity here to bring them. That's the first the first uh, stage, which is tourism. I think economically also, I think we have here the you know combination of again Arab speakers and the startup nation put those two together and we could have a fantastic R&D hub for the Middle East. Um, engineers employed here to do work in different Gulf countries. For me, my interest is bringing quality employment to the young people of East Jerusalem. I don't want the, 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 to the social gaps to continue. We want there to be one prosperous city. And I always say, it's like we're all on the same boat. And if there's a hole on one side of the boat, the whole boat's going down. And so whether it's the Haredim, you know, the ultra-Orthodox and their issues, or whether it's the Arabs or their issues, we're all in the same boat called Jerusalem. And so it is in our interest for the whole, all, all of the city to prosper. Our prosperity is tied in to the prosperity of our minorities. And so I saw an opportunity here for having a win-win-win, which is, you know, to triangulate the Arabs from Jerusalem with the Gulf countries, Israel and Jerusalem, and just kind of bring prosperity to everybody through increasing investment, tourism, et cetera. And that was kind of my first, the first driving force of me wanting to do something with the Gulf countries when we understood that there was going to be normalization. My partner, Dorian Barak, and I 
created the council actually before the normalization and peace was announced. We did this in June because Dorian, um, who'd been working for many, many years in the Gulf because he worked with China and Africa and Dubai and Abu Dhabi were always a hub for going off to the east. He's been telling me for ages, this is the new frontier. This is exciting. And then at one point I said, well, let's create this and see how it happens. We didn't imagine in our wildest dreams that two months later we'd have these uh, with these accords signed. And so we were completely, completely thrilled. What does the signing of the accords actually mean to you personally? I know when we've spoken in private, obviously you have a background family-wise of, you know, Jews who lived in Arab lands for, you know, centuries until 1948 and uh, the early 50s when obviously all of that changed. You know, for me as an Ashkenazi Jew, you know, the world, the world of the, the Arab Jew is, is, is not something that is, is perhaps well known into, into the Ashkenazi Jew um, culture, but certainly for, for centuries, if not thousands of years, Jews lived in Arab lands, not only peaceably, but thrived. Absolutely. I mean, look, I, my family come from Spain. Uh, they come from Moorish Spain, which is basically Muslim Spain, where we lived in peace and harmony. And our family apparently were advisors to the kings. There you go. It's politics again. <laughs> can't, you can't get away from your genes. Um, so, um, but, but it was when the Christian uh, crusaders came and, and kicked us all out that we ended up, we wound up in, in Gibraltar. Part of my family wound up in Morocco. My mother's family is from, from Morocco. And my, I still have family. I still have an aunt in Morocco. So they had business partners who were Muslims. In Gibraltar, I have to say, my father's biggest uh, supporters were Muslim. When my father passed away and, and they, did a big, um, they did a big state funeral, you know, the Muslims were crying and saying, our father has died. You know, they're very lyrical, the Muslims, how they talk. And so that's where I come from. I don't come from a place of conflict with Muslims. I come from a place where we call each other cousins, you know, and where Muslims prefer to work with Jews because of dietary, uh, you know, dietary compatibility, put it that way. Um, and so when I came to Israel, of course, uh, I, I, I was aware of the, of the conflict, but I always, I knew that it wasn't about religion. You know what I mean? It's about politics. It's not about religion. People use religion um, to advance their political gains, to advance the political uh, aims. But then it's not about religion because we lived peacefully with Muslims our whole lives. And so that's where I come from. Of course, my name is Hassan. You, can, you can't get more Muslim than that. Um, and so, and I've always had this very strong connection in university. I remember having a lot of Muslim friends and I never understood what, you know, what, I, of course, again, I realized that it's about politics. It's not about religion. And so for me, this was a window, you know, when the peace was announced, it was the window of what could be, of what the region could look like if everybody just, you know, decided that nobody's going away and therefore we should find a way of living together. And I think that's really the problem everywhere that, you know, people go to bed thinking, okay, I'm going to wake up and the Haredim are going to be gone or the Arabs are going to be gone or the secular are going to be gone if you're Haredi or the Jews are going to be gone if you're Arab. In the end, nobody's going anywhere. And so there's only one way forward and that is to create a shared society where we can all learn to live with each other. And in Jerusalem, I tell you, uh, Rob, it's not even about the Jews and Arabs. Most of the time it's about Jews with Jews, secular and ultra-Orthodox. It's a big thing in Jerusalem. People are way more paranoid about that than they are about Jews and Arabs. 
And so ultimately, it all boils down to the same thing. Just accepting, this is really the, the essence of pluralism, and I consider myself a pluralist, accepting that everybody has a place and everybody's going to stay. And so find a way to live together. And for me, the, the Abraham Accords is like that happening on a regional level. Nobody's going away. Let's just create peace, understanding, reconciliation, and a better future for all our children. And that's, that's how I see it. So it's very exciting. I think what you say is so true and you know they the, the accords you know garnered the name Abraham accords because ultimately we have the same you know religious father the historic forefather of both religions being Abraham and you know yesterday we received the most horrible news that um, rabbi lord Jonathan Sachs passed away yes and I'm, you know, a, a big pupil of his works. And only last year I'd read his, you know, incredible work, Not in God's Name. Yes, I read that. Confronting Extremism. Uh, religious violence. And there was yes. a section that I, I looked at again this morning, knowing that we were going to be talking and just thinking about the Abraham Accords again, because he says all of this roots right back to Abraham. And, and this yeah. excerpt that actually I think it's worth reading, certainly in his memory. Um, Love to hear it sums up where we're heading with this. Um, so I'll, I'll read some of it and uh, maybe we'll, we'll share some thoughts afterwards. On the surface, the story of Isaac and Ishmael is about sibling rivalry and the displacement of the elder by the younger. Beneath the surface, however, the sages heard a counter narrative telling the opposite story. The birth of Isaac does not displace Ishmael. To be sure, he will have a different destiny but he too is a beloved son of Abraham. He becomes a great nation as well. God is with him as he grows up. God stays with him to ensure that his children flourish and become 12 rulers. Abraham and Isaac, together with Ishmael, make the journey of reconciliation. The two half brothers stand together at their father's grave. There is no hostility between them. Their futures diverge, but there is no conflict between them, nor do they compete for God's affection, which encompasses them both. This reading becomes all the more powerful when in our Jewish text, it is extended to the relationship between Judaism and Islam today. Brothers can live together in peace. So the counter narrative implies I mean, this is going to the it's heart prophecy. of prophecy. seeing. It's prophecy, and uh, that's Lord Sachs, who will be dearly missed. I was, I've read a lot of his books. Um, one of the things that I remember reading in, um, in I think it's the, the God, not in God's name or in the Dignity of Diversity, um, Dignity of <laughs> Difference, yep. Difference. I remember reading something which stays with me and I use it all the time. By the way, I have a little secret. Every time I need to make a speech, I always go onto uh, Lord Sachs's website, Parashat Shavua, weekly portion. I take one of his thoughts and that becomes my speech for the week. And I have to do this a lot, Rob. So, and I do it in English and in Hebrew. So literally every week I go on the website and I just take one, you know, one of his pearls wisdom and I kind of make my my, uh, my my speech with that all week anyway but one of the things which I always say and especially when I'm talking to Jew, Jews against Jews in conflict or Jews against Arabs or Jews against anybody or anybody against anybody you know in the Bible love the stranger is mentioned about 50 times more than love thy neighbor and why is that is because you are because we were strangers and so it's so 
it's so, for me, it's so obvious that the Torah wants us to embrace difference, you know, and this is what uh, Lord Sachs always spoke about. You can still be proud of who you are, have your identity very strong, stay with your values, and yet love the other. And for me, the other is not just Muslims and Jews, it's LGBT community, or it's, um, you know, reformed Jews. I'm not a reformed Jew, but they're part of us. They may not be exactly like us, but you still have to love people who believe different things or ultimately believe the same thing. And so for me, um, in Jerusalem, which is where the kind of, I believe Jerusalem is a special place. Kitzion Titzetora, you know, from Zion Torah will come out. Torah is not just the Torah that we learn in the five books. Torah is, the, is methodologies, methodologies of peace, methodologies of coexistence, methodologies of shared society. We have in Jerusalem the largest number of NGOs per capita than anywhere in the world because everybody thinks they can save the world in some way. <laughs> and even in business, a lot of the businesses that you see that you take for granted in Israel, they all started in Jerusalem because when it works here, for the, for the residents that basically encompass every type of person, it can work anywhere. And so it's kind of, we're like the better testing site of things that work here in Jerusalem. Aroma started here. You know, I mean, I could, I could go on. Um, but that's, that's basically a real belief by me. And that's why, because we have the biggest diversity of people here, because we have the, the harshest conflicts here, we're also going to have the solution here. This is where the solution is going to come from, Jerusalem. Because if we can crack that living together, shared society, Jews, Muslims, uh, Christians, Jews, Reformed Jews, LGBT, secular, ultra-Orthodox, if we can manage to solve it here, then it's going to have positive repercussions for the rest of the world. And I truly believe that, and that's why I'm in this, and that's why I'm in Jerusalem, you know, doing what I do. I mean, first of all, A amazing to hear that story and the, the passion that you have for Jerusalem but taking the point that you made there beautifully around loving the other um, if we turn our attention to um, America where loving the other is certainly something that is uh, on the table at the moment we're seeing yeah. a, a potential shift we're, we're we're understanding that this morning it is looking like it's going to be a Biden-Harris administration the Abraham yeah. The Abraham Accords are a the, the brainchild of Trump and Kushner, who kicked off with the initial peace initiative uh, that was um, widely put around the region before the Abraham Accords were something that was to be able to come to fruition. Um, we know from certainly the Obama era, the outset of how they wanted to manage the region's foreign policy was very, very different. And it produced different results and a different feeling and relationship between Israel and America, but also regionally, it had a big impact. For, 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 for those on both sides of the aisles, I don't think anybody could say that what has happened is, is not a good thing so far with the Abraham Accords. Looking to the Biden-Harris administration that is most likely going to, to take charge in, in, in late June, January rather, um, how do you think this is going to affect things on the ground? How do you think the Abraham Accords will proceed? Will they proceed? I think so. I think for a number of reasons. First of all, I think what Trump and Kushner did, especially, 
was to just turn a hinge. It's like they change something that will, will remain changed forever. You can't roll back a momentum which has already picked up speed on its own. Yes, they were the matchmakers. Yes, there was a lot of pressure, pressuring, I'm sure, on all sides here. But that's happened now. And the way that people have embraced it, and for me, this is the most encouraging thing about the whole thing. You know, with Jordan and Egypt, we've had peace for years, but it was never a peace that trickled down to people. With the Abraham Accords, I can tell you, because as you know, I'm involved in many forums and we've created this council. I also created a women's forum for Gulf Israel Women's Forum. And I can tell you, this is running by itself. It needed the initial push, which Trump and Kushner gave it. And now it's running on its own. So I don't think anybody can stop that. And, I'm, and, and I don't also see why anybody would stop that. I don't see Joe Biden as a vengeful, a vengeful sort that's going to want to roll back everything that Trump did. I don't see it. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm being naive. Maybe I want to think the best of people. I don't see why something positive that has happened in a region that hasn't happened for many, many years, somehow a White House wouldn't be supportive. Joe Biden was supportive, I believe, when the Abraham Accords were signed, and I don't see why not. Will there be the same hand-holding? I don't know. That's something that we have to see. I don't think there'll be a rolling back. Certainly, I hear from my American friends that they have no intention of moving back the embassy. That's been moved. That was done. Um, and, and, and the building continues. And so I'm hoping that, um, that Joe Biden will not be a repeat of Barack Obama. Why do I say that? Um, and I've spoken to a lot of people in the, in the Gulf. The, the Gulf um, residents believe that Obama was, a, was bad for them because he emboldened um, Iran versus the Gulf. This is not me. This is not Israel saying it. This is my friends in Bahrain and my friends in the UAE telling me this. Almost everybody I met wanted Trump to win because they were scared that a democratic president was going to embolden Iran, which at the moment is being suffocated economically, but for one main reason, to stop their regime from funding terrorism across the region and across the globe. And so I think that, and, and, my, and a lot of friends tell me, Biden is not Obama. Biden is not Obama. That's what they keep telling me. Now, you have to understand, I'm not, you know, I don't, you know, I, in Israel, politics is very different to America. It's not Republicans and Democrats. I'm a European who grew up with socialized health care. You know, I'm a feminist who believes in freedom of choice. So I can't say I'm here or I'm there. It's not the same. OK, but what I can say is that the um, the, 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 the Trump administration did the Middle East much better than the Obama administration. And so people in the Middle East are scared. Um, and I'm hoping, and I, and I believe that people have to be given a chance, I'm hoping that Biden-Harris will understand what it means to be, you know, the, the, the new alignment of the Middle East, which is the moderate countries versus the Muslim Brotherhood slash uh, Iran Shia countries. Um, and I have a little bit of encouragement that apparently Joe Biden has always been very sympathetic towards the Kurds. And so Turkey for him, you know, will be a country that he's not going to let get away with what they're getting away with. 
And that already for me is a good sign. So I hope and pray that the new leaders in the United States have the clarity of understanding who the good guys and the bad guys are, uh, to put it really simply. I think I think ultimately I agree with you that the 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 world has already changed. We've walked through that door, like you referenced earlier on. Um, I, I, my big prediction is that actually Kushner stra, stra, uh, slash Trump will focus heavily on implementing other parts of the Abraham Accords before they leave office. Uh, the reason I say that is that I think number one. They want that to be part of their legacy, and it's a great legacy to have. It's an amazing legacy. But I also think you'll see Saudi Arabia make a strategic decision as to, do we do this now before Biden comes in? And actually, let's sign it up. Let's get it under the, the same banner of the Abraham Accords. And, and that gives us the, the waiting, particularly as a, a sort of axis against the Iran stroke Turkey um, Shia element that, that will be there. I think that's the big... It's funny you say that, Rob, because when I was in UAE, I certainly got the feeling, and I didn't get the feeling before I was there, but when I was there, I got the feeling that Saudi Arabia is next. And somebody else mentioned what you've just said. You know, if Trump loses, Saudi Arabia will want to put their flag in the sand already before the new administration comes in. So I have heard that. I'm hoping it's true because Saudi Arabia, I said this and apparently made headlines in Saudi Arabia when I said it, is, the big, is our big white whale. What I meant is, is the big player that we need to get on our side. I said big white whale, and apparently the next day, Israel official says Saudi Arabia is their big white whale. And I only meant it in a positive sense. Um, and so, um, and so I'm hoping that, that your prediction is correct, Rob. So as we turn our, our attentions, as, we, as we've discussed to the future, what do you see as the... Um, first of all, challenges for the relationships over the next few years. You know, at the moment, we feel like we're in this this dating phase. Honeymoon, honeymoon, yeah. We're in a honeymoon. We're in love. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. There will be challenges. Wait till, till the first year of marriage, guys. <laughs> <laughs> the challenges will come. And, and how we navigate them is how we actually build the strength in the relationship going forward. And, and, and a second part to that question you know, when, when we look forward 10 years, what does this relationship look like, not just with the UAE, but certainly with the Gulf region as a whole and the Abraham Accords as a historic moment for us all? Definitely a historic moment. Look, I think that our region has the potential to be a superpower. If we only had some peace, honestly, we have everything between us, not separately, <laughs> but between us, we have natural resources, ingenuity, uh, you know, advanced technology. So we could really, really uh, bring a new era, not just for the region, but for the world. So that's the end of, uh, you know, of what could be a very good marriage, <laughs> uh, using your metaphor. But um, I think that I think we're going to have to get used to each other. I think our mentalities are very different. Um, Actually, I very much um, identify with the mentality in the UAE because it's a little bit more like my mentality. Israelis are very transactional. You know, you go in, business, boom, boom, boom. What am I getting? What are you getting? Let's sign, MOU, we're done. That's not how it works over there. There, it's about building trust and it's about building relationships, um, which I actually really connect to because that's how I do business. I 
do business with people I trust. And when I say business, I'm, I don't mean literally business. I'm talking about politics, uh, projects, uh, you know. I do projects and I do things with people that I trust and I've built a relationship with because that's always the best way to do things. And so I really, really identify with the way that they work. And I think a lot of people like me also would do here. So the, we have to build, bridge some cultural gaps. And that is Israel being much more transactional and the Gulf um, Arabs certainly being more into relationship and trust building. That's the first thing. I think second thing, second thing is it, within tourism, we're going to have floods of Israelis going there because it's going to be a three-hour flight. The hotels are way cheaper, way nicer than here, I hate to say. Um, and people have to understand they're not going to Ayanapa. It's a traditional Muslim society where you can't drink on the streets, you can drink at bars, you can drink in hotels, but you can't make a fool of yourself walking around drunk on the streets. And if you're 18 and 19 and 20, and you're used to doing that in Greece, you cannot do that in Dubai. And it's an insult if we do. We have to respect the culture of the places that we are going to. So I think that, and I'm trying to figure out how to do it. I'm, I'm considering putting out some cult cultural um, cultural, like kind of two minute tidbits on, on how to, you know, how to, sheet. we need a cheat sheet of the do's. Exactly. And the well, we're doing this. We're going to do this. Maybe you can help us, Rob. Do's and don'ts. Um, that's what I'm doing for the Israelis going out there for the, for the Emiratis, uh, Bahrainis coming in. I'm actually now working, please God, with the government of Israel to ensure that there's no, um, that there's no, misunderstandings in the airport. Uh, look, we have to understand that uh, the protocols in our airports for many years have been protocols that are there to identify, you know, enemies and enemies were all coming from Arab speaking places. And so we need to make a switch because the last thing we want is to have some overzealous 18 year olds on our borders, you know, taking a group of Emiratis who are coming here on a nice holiday and giving them the, the, the and, you know, and giving them the, the fifth uh, degree um, uh, to interrogation at, at our borders. So these are the things that I'm working on behind the scenes to try and ensure that Israelis are ready. Um, also security on Temple Mount. I'm not worried security wise. I'm worried about the unpleasantness and the comments and, and, you know, and the, and the bit and some bitter, uh, Palestinians or people sent by Turkey uh, to make it difficult for Emiratis to to uh, to come and, and and do their pilgrimage, and so these are the things I'm working on on this end, and of course uh, hoping that the Israelis will be you know Israelis go to Morocco all the time and they're extremely respectful, sure. and I just want them to have the same mentality. It's not Ayanapa, it's not Ibiza, it's not Party Town. It's a wonderful place. You can have a lot of fun, but you have to understand that you have to follow the rules and you have to respect the local culture. Fleur, this has been an absolutely amazing first episode of the Abraham Accords podcast. I think we could continue speaking for hours, but we are going to, but in future episodes where we include some guests from both Israel, from the Gulf region and beyond. So look, Fleur, thank you so, so much. I'm looking forward to co-hosting this with you. Thanks, Rob. So am I. Until the next time. Thank you for joining Fleur and I on the Abraham Accords podcast. Remember to subscribe so you can be updated on more episodes.